Guys, welcome back. Welcome. Oh, I better stay over here before my mic goes out. Welcome to the Commons Church. Welcome back. Uh, if you're new here, I just want to say a special welcome to you guys. Uh, if we haven't met, my name is Zach uh, Cunningham, uh, and I'll give a quick introduction uh, to who I am before we dive in. Uh, four months ago, uh, I moved here to East Lansing with the girl of my dreams. Okay, my wife, Mally Cunningham, she's sitting right over there. Uh, I married way up. Okay, and if you know me and you know my wife, you're like, bro, understatement of the year. Okay, I love my wife. I love this church. Uh, I get to serve here as one of the pastors uh, and get to help lead the Salt Company, uh, which is the name of our college ministry at the Commons Church. If you didn't know, uh, four weeks ago, we kicked off a brand new college ministry at Michigan State called the Salt Company, right? We're excited about the Salt Company. (laughs) I'm like looking at Preston, like, give me some affirmation. And if, if my mic's like, uh, they're trying to figure out my mic. So if you guys hear like some rattling, they're going to try to figure that out as I go. So we help lead the Salt Company, uh, which is a college ministry at Michigan State for MSU students and LCC students, go stars, uh, to come and to worship on Thursday nights. And so for the f- past four weeks, we've had Salt Company, a worship gathering for college students to come and to worship and hear the Bible taught. There's small groups at Salt Company, and we've seen God do some incredible things at Salt Company, people getting saved, taking their next step with Jesus, and all glory be to God. It's been incredible. So if you're a college student and you have not come out on a Thursday night, you got to come to Salt Company. I've left every Thursday night super encouraged, and and I know you guys will too. Um, So the great four weeks at Salt Company, great four months here in East Lansing, me and my wife. Uh, We love this city, love this campus. Uh, You can catch me at Blue Owl Coffee Shop uh, drinking an iced vanilla latte. Latte, hanging out with some college students. That's a plug. I love the ice vanilla latte. Or you can catch my wife uh, at Sparrow Hospital where all night long she cares for patients there. Actually, last night worked a night shift and she's here this morning. So we love the people of this city. I love just plugging in and getting to know people. Love East Lansing. We've had many good days in East Lansing, but not all of them have been good. Actually, one of the very first days in East Lansing was terrible, and I want to tell you about it this morning before we jump in. So My wife and I, back in March, uh, we came to look for apartments in East Lansing. And some of you have heard this story before. Buckle up, because we're going back. So we came last March to look for apartments. And before, we did the prep work. Okay, we like did all the research on apartments.com and Zillow. And we had a list of five or six apartments that we wanted to check out. So we got up early in the morning. Uh, we got our coffee, and we set out on the adventure to find our new home, and it was an absolute disaster, okay? Every single apartment that we looked at was, like, way different than the pictures on the internet. Like, who takes those pictures on the internet? Um, it smelled like a mixture of, like, cat urine and cigarette smoke. Literally, almost all the apartments we went to, um, the price was, like, way more than advertised. All of these apartments we checked out, it was terrible, except for the last one. Okay, so we make it down our list, and we go to Timberlake Apartments. Okay, so we put it in our GPS, and we drive up to it, and it, they're like log cabins, like Abraham Lincoln had built these things. So we roll in, and we get a key to this apartment complex, or this uh, unit, and we walk in, it's like brand new. Okay, like new hardwood floors, white cabinets, um, what else? There's an in-unit washer and dryer, which I found out is a pretty important deal. And we're walking around, and I look at Mally, and she's like smiling ear to ear. And I'm like, bro, happy wife, happy life. Like I'm about to sign this thing right now. And so I'm ready to sign the lease like this. But we didn't do it out of impulse. Okay, it was a long day. So we go to the coffee shop uh, to decompress. And we're super excited about this apartment, Timberlakes. But I'm sitting there and there's something I couldn't shake. And it was the price of this apartment. It was like weirdly cheap. 
like for the quality of, of this apartment complex. So I'm sitting there like, why? Something's not right about this apartment complex. It's cheap. And so we get out the computer and we look up reviews for this apartment complex. And like most apartment complexes, they have good reviews and bad reviews. Um, but this one in particular uh, was unique because a lot of the bad reviews was talking about this fire that had happened in this apartment complex. And so Mally and I, we, we Googled Timberlake Apartments fire. And sure enough, there's an article from a year ago that the entire unit had burned down. And all these people lost all their stuff. No one died, but they lost all their stuff. And so they left bad reviews. And so we're reading this, and stress levels are high already. And I look over to Mally, and she just starts bawling, crying. Like, the one apartment that we liked, there's a fire hazard on it. And not only did it burn down a year ago, but if you look back, it burned down another year before that. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. And so Mally and I, the next day, we rolled on this uh, apartment. We walked to the manager. We're like, okay, you're going to have to tell us, like, why the fire started. Uh, why didn't you tell us that before? And so we asked her, and she's like, well, it had something to do with the fireplaces, and there's like a switch that had like a short and burned things down. So they went through all the apartments and unhooked the switch. And so Mally and I were sitting there like, okay, what are the odds that it would burn down like a third time in a row? And so I'm like, babe, let's just do this thing. And so we sign it, and, and I actually believe, man, God burned down that apartment to give us a brand new one. And so, no, I'm just kidding. That's a joke. Why do I tell you that story? Because this morning, we're going to be continuing our series through the book of John. In this series, Common People, Uncommon God, where people are having encounters with Jesus. And this morning, we're going to be in John 3, a very familiar passage uh, in the book of John and in the Bible concerning this guy named Nicodemus. Okay, the story of Nicodemus. And what we're going to see is Jesus and Nicodemus, are, they're going to have this encounter, and Jesus is going to completely and totally deconstruct this guy's life, literally burn his house down in order to rebuild something better, okay, something new. He's going to have this encounter with Jesus and light that baby on fire. And Jesus does this all throughout the Bible. Jesus is teaching, and he's tearing down one worldview, attacking it, in order to build up a better one. And that's what's going to happen with Nicodemus, but not just Nicodemus. Because here's the temptation this morning especially if you grew up in the church, okay, and you've heard the story of Nicodemus taught before, maybe preached a couple times, and you're like, oh, Zach, you're in John 3? Sweet. I'm deucing out, clocking out, and this, this message is for the person sitting next to me. I'm going to sit here. You're going to do your thing. You're going to pray. We're going to sing two songs, and we're going to go to lunch, okay, and that's the temptation. You're going to, like, zone out, and if that's you, let me just say this. What Jesus is going to say here this morning is actually going to rub up against a lot of people in this room, okay, that there are people in this room right now who have a version of Christianity or a version of spirituality that Jesus actually wants to deconstruct, that there are things that you think are true about religion that you need to unlearn this morning, okay, and Jesus is going to say some things, and it may be painful, but we're going to put in the work here, and if you listen, here's what I'll promise you, if you'll listen and pay attention and think about the words of Jesus, I promise you it's going to be worth it. Okay, there's some white cabinets and hardwood floor on the other side. You follow me? Okay, let's do this. John 3. That's where we're going to be this morning. So if you have a Bible, John chapter 3. We'll start in verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, it'll be on the screen. John 3, verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for 
No one can do these signs that you do unless God is with them. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. And so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Okay, real quick, this is where I, I'm going this morning. This is where I want to get to. Okay, I want to look at this conversation with Jesus and Nicodemus, and I want to answer three questions. Three questions regarding this phrase, born again. Okay, and those three questions are this. Why do we have to be born again? Why do we have to be born again? Number two, how are we born again? How do we, how do we get born again? And number three, how can you know that you are born again? Sitting here right now, how, how can you know that you're born again? Those are the three questions I want to answer here in this text this morning. So let's jump in. But before we do, a little context before this passage. Okay, Jesus, he rolls onto the scene in John chapter 1. Okay, and things start to go down. Austin taught this last week. Jesus, he comes, and John the Baptist, he points to Jesus and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. There he is, the chosen one, the Messiah. He's here, baby. And Jesus, he starts going to ordinary people, fishermen, inviting them, Hey, come follow me. Come. Follow me. And he starts his ministry. And then Jesus, in John chapter 2, we didn't read it, but Jesus, his boys and his mama, they go to a wedding. Okay, and they're at this wedding, and the wine, it runs out pretty fast. And Jesus is like, hey, bring me some water. Bam, turns it into wine. Literally keeps the party going. And people are like, yo, I'm following this guy. Okay, and he starts to do all these miracles. And some of you are like, yeah, if I was at a wedding and someone turned water into wine, I'd probably be following him too. And people, so they're following Jesus follow him like, oh my gosh, who is this guy? And so the crowds start to follow him and, and they catch his attention. But also the religious leaders are starting to say, who is this Jesus guy? And specifically one guy, our guy, Nicodemus, comes to Jesus at night and look at what it says in verse one again. It says, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus at night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do the things that you're doing unless God is with them. So Nicodemus, he comes to Jesus at night. And what do we know about Nicodemus? Well, John, he gives us some clues, okay? And it's not by accident that he says these things. Because John, he could have said, now there was a man who came to Jesus by night. But that's not what it says. It says a man named Nicodemus who was a Pharisee, who was a ruler of the Jews, and later the teacher of Israel. And those things are not by accident, and they're the key to understanding the text that we're going to this morning. And here's what, I, here's what I need you to understand. This guy, Nicodemus, he wasn't just a man. He was the man. Okay, this guy was the top of society, both religiously and politically. Okay, people looked up, these guys, the Pharisees, uh, they were this group of like ruling Jews who like wrote all the laws for all the Jews everywhere, and people looked up to them. And the Bible often talks about the Pharisees as these like arrogant hypocrites. But you got to understand, people looked up to them. They were like the people in society who were respected 
And little boys like looked up to them like LeBron James or Steph Curry, like, yo, I want to be like the Pharisees. And so these Pharisees are a group of people, never more than 6,000 of them, okay, who took like this blood oath, like we're going to be blood brothers and we're going to keep the Old Testament law to a T. Okay, we're going to do everything we can to keep every single law of the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments, plus like 603 other laws. They're like, we're going to keep all of them. Let's do it. And they believed that if they did that, they'd be good with God. So they, this is what they did. They took a law of the Old Testament, like uh, one of the Ten Commandments, and they wrote out all of the ways that it could be applied in any given situation. Okay, they just took it and just started writing out, how can this be applied in all of these different situations? And what you had was some crazy laws. Okay, we read them and like, man, those are some wild, specific laws. And they thought, man, if you kept them, you're going to be close to God. And so I'm going to read some of the laws that the Pharisees had. But before I do that, I want to put it in perspective. Have you guys ever seen those articles online uh, about strange laws in like certain like cities and states? You guys know what I'm talking about? The weird laws where if you look it up, like in the books, that's the law of the land. And like these crazy laws all over the country. I'm going to read some of them for you. And my, my, uh, my source is the internet, so take it for what it is. So in Washington, the state of Washington, if you find Bigfoot, it's illegal to kill him. You can't kill him. In Indiana, it's illegal to throw a rock at a bird unless it's self-defense. <laughs> so you got a crazy bird coming, you can throw it, but you can't throw a rock at a bird. In Kentucky, it's illegal to dye a duck blue and sell it unless you sell at least six of them. I'm not sure why you would die duck blue. Okay, in Arkansas, it's illegal to honk your horn near a sandwich shop after 9 p.m. In Delaware, you're not allowed to sell dog hair. I'm not sure why people sell dog hair. You can't do it in Delaware. In Ohio, get this, in Ohio, if you lose your pet tiger, this is in the books, if you lose your pet tiger, you have to alert the authorities within the hour. You got, you got 60 seconds to find that thing. You got to call the cops. In Iowa, if you try to market fake butter as real butter, you go to jail for 30 days. <laughs> Iowans, they love their real butter. Uh, in Louisiana, in Louisiana, it's illegal to send a surprise pizza to someone. Like you can't call Domino's and send a pizza to someone. In Texas, you're not allowed to pee on the Alamo, which seems like a good law. Um, also illegal is in Texas is to sell your own eyeball, but you can sell other people's eyeballs. And then here in Michigan, what about, what about the great state of Michigan? This is on the books, it's bad. Um, it is illegal to kill a dog using a decompression chamber. Seems like a good law to me. Cars. In Michigan, you can't sell a car on Sunday. So Chick-fil-A and cars, you ain't buying one today. In Detroit, 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 it's illegal to tie an alligator to a fire hydrant. Makes sense. In Harper Woods, Michigan, it's against the law to paint a sparrow and sell it as a parakeet. Parakeets must be more valuable than sparrows. Okay, fine, last one. In Detroit, it's illegal to let your pig run around free unless it has a ring in its nose, and then you can let it run free. These are laws on the books, and so the reason I share them with you is to say there's some crazy laws that exist in this country, some of them common sense, some of them completely unnecessary, and the reason I share them with you is the Pharisees 
are the types of people who would look at those laws and say, I'm going to keep every one of them. Okay, and they had their own set of crazy laws where if you read them, you're like, bro, that's weird and unnecessary. For example, here's one of their laws. On the Sabbath day, you weren't allowed to spit on the dirt because if you did that, you're technically making mortar for brick. Okay, and then on the Sabbath, you're not allowed to work. So if you spit on the dirt, the moment your spit hits the dirt, you've broken the law. You're working on the Sabbath day. Another one on the Sabbath is you're not allowed to walk in a field of wheat because your sandal could accidentally chip like a grain of wheat and technically you're harvesting wheat. And you're not allowed to do that on the Sabbath. Another rule the Pharisees had was if you forgot to pray before a meal and you left, you had to, before it digested, go back to the exact spot that you were sitting and pray for the meal that you already had. So these Pharisees, they had all these crazy laws and they believed, hey, if I keep all these laws, God will love me and I'll have the favor of God, that these laws lead to life. And our guy, Nicodemus, he's part of that group. He's part of that group and he comes to Jesus at night and he says, Jesus, rabbi, teacher, I, you, must, you must have God on your side. You must be religious. I'm a religious person. You're a religious person. We should be friends and hang out and talk about all the things we know. And Jesus, he cuts him off. He doesn't even let Nicodemus finish his sentence. And he just interrupts him, doesn't entertain anything he said. And he says one of the most remarkable and difficult passages in all the Bible, verse 3, says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus, he says, you must be born again. And we have to understand Nicodemus's life in order for that to land the way that it's supposed to land. Jesus is saying to this man who was religious, who was morally good and sought after God with everything that he had, hey, what you are doing isn't going to work. What you're doing isn't going to work. Those laws, those silly laws are not going to give you the eyes that you need to see the kingdom of God. It's not going to work. And this is where Jesus just lights a match to his entire life. Your religious deeds are not good enough. You are not good enough to get to God. None of these things will lead to life. It's not about doing stuff for God. Your religion won't save you. You need to be born again. You need to be born again. And this is where what Jesus says is going to press in on some of the things that people believe about Christianity. Because here's what I know is true, that there are people in the church today who believe and act just like the Pharisees, who believe that by doing good stuff, God will love me. That by keeping a list of man-made rules, I will have the favor of God. And what we do is, we make these man-made rules, and if we keep them, we're good. And, and tell me, if you've heard any of these before, you can't wear that to church. You can't eat that. You can't drink this. You can't cuss. You can't struggle with this specific sin and be a Christian. You can't struggle with drugs and be a Christian. You can't watch rated R movies. You stay away from Harry Potter and SpongeBob, man. They're out to get you. And we laugh, but we laugh at the funny like rules and about the fake butter and about spitting on dirt. But the reality is we do the same thing. And this is me, man. I, I grew up in the church. Okay, I went to church every Sunday, didn't cuss, 
didn't come within 100 yards of an open alcoholic beverage. I didn't touch a girl. I went to church every Sunday, went to Bible camp. I was the perfect Baptist kid. And some of you in here, man, this is you. You, you prayed a prayer growing up. You shook the pastor's hand. You got confirmed or baptized, whatever it is. But Jesus, what he says to Nicodemus is, hey, those things that you're putting your life and your trust in, those things will not save you. And the truth is, you can be a perfectly good Pharisee and a perfectly good Baptist and Lutheran and Catholic and still be lost, still be blind to the gospel, that these things will not save you. And Jesus, he says, you must be born again. You must be born again to see the kingdom of God. These good deeds will not save you. And so the first question, why do we have to be born again? The answer is because religion, a strong morality, and strong will cannot save you. But how? How do we get born again? Like how, do we, how do we do it? If we, if, we can't, if we need to be born again, how do we get born again? Well, I'm glad you asked, because that's what Nicodemus asked in the next verse. Look at verse 4. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? How do we get born again? Nicodemus is like, how in the world am I supposed to do this? Like, I kept some silly stuff, like silly rules in my life, but this one, Jesus, that's weird, man. You, you want me to crawl back in there? And don't think about it too long. That's a disturbing picture. My mom, my mom had a C-section, so I'd have to get creative to get, like, get back in there. <laughs> but Jesus, he said, or Nicodemus, he asked, totally missing the metaphor here. He's missing the metaphor. He says, how can we do this? And Jesus, notice he doesn't back down. He says almost the same thing in verse 5. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. And that which is born of spirit is spirit. And so Jesus, he begins to explain to Nicodemus what the new birth is. And he makes a correlation between physical birth and spiritual birth. Now, I haven't had any kids. My wife hasn't had any kids. I've never even seen a live birth before. Nor do I really want to. But I've watched enough Grey's Anatomy to know kind of how it works. So what Jesus is doing here is he's making a point to Nicodemus that just like in your physical birth, you had nothing to do with it, the same is true of your spiritual birth. That you can't give birth to yourself physically and you can't give birth to yourself spiritually. And so think about physical birth for a second. The baby doesn't do anything to get born. You know who does all the work? The mama does. Okay, she's the one who carries the baby for nine months. She has to change her eating habits, her sleeping habits. She has to go into labor and pop that thing out. And the dad is just cheering her on like, you're doing good, babe. Hold my hand. So for the, for the most part, the mom, the mom is the one who does everything in the baby making process. The dad does like one thing. But for the most part, the mom, the mom's the one who does something. You know who doesn't do anything? The baby. The baby. And Jesus is saying, hey, just like your mama is the one who did all of the work to birth you physically, God is the one who does all the work to birth you spiritually. You have to be born again. And God's the one who does all the work. That phrase, born again, it literally means it's translated born from above. 
okay? Born again. It has nothing to do with politics or Republican. It means born from above. To be born from above, that God's the one who comes and opens our hearts and births us spiritually. And this is often called uh, regeneration, okay? In the church, regeneration. It's a churchy word that describes the moment that the Holy Spirit comes into your dead, our dead and spiritually dead bodies and gives us life, okay, that moment. And some of you in this room, you can remember the moment that the Holy Spirit opened your eyes to the gospel. You can remember the day that all your life you heard about the love of God, but then you finally experienced it yourself. And you remember the moment. But some people in this room, it was a process of God slowly revealing himself to you. But either way, the Holy Spirit came and gave you new life and took out your heart of like stone and gave you a heart of flesh. And you were able to see, see the kingdom of God. And God's the one who gave you the new life. And Jesus, he says in verse seven, look at verse seven. This is profound. He says, don't marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And so he says to Nicodemus, basically, to the extent, hey, your eternal destiny depends on something you cannot do. Your eternal destiny, it depends on something you cannot do. And this obviously wrecks Nicodemus. It wrecks him. Because he's like, Jesus, if anyone is going to heaven, I, I am. I, I did everything I can. I did everything I can do. And Jesus says, no, man. This, the thing that you need most is outside of your control. Your eternal destiny, it doesn't depend on anything you can do, Nicodemus. It depends on God alone. And if you've been paying attention, some of, you, some of the things that I've said or the Bible has said may have rubbed you the wrong way. You're like, wait a second. How do, how do I get born again? If it's outside of my control, how, how can I be born again? And here's where the deconstruction needs to come to our understanding of some things, to our understanding of salvation and how it works. And here's how I'll explain it. As humans, I mean, there's two things that we love a lot. We love control and we love to get credit for stuff. Okay, we love power and we love to get praise. And especially in our spiritual life, and this is what happens, control and credit. I want to talk about these two things because look at verse eight again. Jesus says something pretty profound. He says, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear it sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the spirit. And so Jesus, he's trying to explain to Nicodemus um, how the new birth happens. And he uses wind as an illustration. And he makes the point that just like you can't control the wind or see it, you know it's there. So it is with the spirit of God that you can't see him or control him or conjure him up or like do enough good stuff that he sees you and, and makes you alive. You can't control him. You can't control him and you can't control the new birth. We are blind and spiritually dead people. And just like the wind, we don't control that. And if we don't control the process, we don't get credit for it either. We don't get credit for it either. And here's what I mean by that. So many people in the church act as though they are better than people who are not Christians. And they think that because I put my faith in Jesus, I am better than people who have not. And I know this is true because I see it all the time on Facebook. Okay, something happens. 
Someone says something and someone comments, hey, y'all need to find Jesus, which is, you know, might be true, but here's the attitude behind that. Hey, y'all need to find Jesus because if y'all found Jesus, y'all wouldn't be doing these things, but I found Jesus and I don't do those things anymore because I found Jesus and I put my faith in Jesus and I did this and I did that. And what happens is in that moment, they want to take control for something because of their understanding of salvation. They were trying to take control or take credit for something that ultimately they did not do. That God's the one who gave them life. And we try to take credit. I see this happen all the time. I was at Blue Owl a couple weeks ago with my eyes vanilla latte, chatting it up with a guy. And we were talking about the gospel and about Jesus. And I wanted to dig into what he believed. And so I asked him this question. I said, say you were to go outside and that construction crane were to fall and smash your body like Play-Doh. It's like morbid. And you were to die on the spot. And you were to go to heaven. And God was standing there at the gate of heaven. And this isn't how the Bible says it happens. But hypothetically, let's say he asks you, hey, why should I let you in? Why should I let you into heaven? And this guy, he gets a little nervous, which is understandably so. It's an intimidating question. And he says something to the extent, well... I was a good person, and I tried my best to live a good life, and I was kind to people, and I tried to live my life in a way that would leave the world in a better place than when I got here, which is a pretty common answer to that question, but tease out the logic. Think about what he's saying. Think about the reasoning there. Why should I let you in? Ultimately, this is what the guy said. God, you should let me into heaven because of what I did in this life. You should let me in because of what I did. And what Jesus says to Nicodemus is, you don't get into heaven based on what you do in this life. You get into heaven based on what Jesus says, you've got to be born again. We don't get credit for it. We don't have control over it. Verse 8, that's why he says, just like the wind, you can't control it, you don't get credit for it. Just like the new birth, and so that leads me to my next question. How? How do you know that you're born again? Zach, I hear you say all of these things about the Spirit and about good works. They can't save me. But how can I know that I'm born again? Like, how can you sit in here right now? What are some things that you can identify in your life that would be true of someone who's born again? Like, how can I know, man? Because I'm kind of freaking out. Like, I'm a little uneasy. How can you know that you're born again? We'll look back. We'll look at verse 9. Verse 9, Nicodemus, he said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I've told you earthly things and you don't believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And so Nicodemus, he's reached like max confusion level, like calculus two confusion level. And he's sitting there and Jesus, he like roasts his ego, like you're the teacher of Israel and you don't understand any of these things. Like you're the one that people come to and ask questions. You don't understand this. You know the whole Old Testament. And then Jesus, he refers back to the Old Testament to explain this one more time. Look at verse 13. It says, no one has ascended into heaven except he who has descended from heaven the son of man. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, 
so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So Jesus, he refers back to the book of Numbers, um, the story of Moses and the Israelites. And Nicodemus, he would have known this story, like the back of his hand. So I'll explain this story real fast. It's an incredible story. Um, So in the book of Numbers, Moses, he leads the people of Israel out of Egypt, out of slavery, into the wilderness. Okay, and they're setting up camp. So they got their tents, campfires, like s'mores. And then all of a sudden, snakes everywhere start to show up. Like a scary movie, like a horror movie. Snakes on the plane style. Okay, snakes popping up everywhere. And you got hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of Israelites starting to get bit by snakes. And everyone's freaking out. And Moses is like, oh my gosh, what should we do? And he goes into the tent and says, God, there's snakes everywhere, help us. And God, he says, Moses, calm down. This is what I want you to do. I want you to take a pole and I want you to take a snake. Don't get bit. I want you to put it on this pole. And I want you to go to the center of camp. I want you to plant it in the center of camp. And anyone who just looks at the snake will be healed immediately. Literally, drag your family members to the pole. Tell them, look at the snake, and they will be healed. And Jesus says, just like that, just like the serpent was lifted up in numbers, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And all of those who would look to him and believe in him will be saved. That's how you're saved. Whoever believes in him has eternal life. You want to know how you can know that you're born again? You want to know the ultimate test if you're in the kingdom of God? Depends on your answer to this question. Do you believe? Do you believe? Because you may hear what Jesus says to Nicodemus about the wind and about good works, and it might be confusing, but Jesus, he says it here clear as day. Do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe that Jesus is who he says he is and died on the cross for your sins? Do you believe the gospel? That in the same way, the serpent was lifted up in numbers and the Israelites had to look to the serpent. In the same way, Jesus was lifted up on the cross. And just like the Israelites who were dying from the snake bites had to look to that serpent to be healed, us, we are dying because of our sin. And if we would just look to the cross and with the eyes of our hearts, look to Jesus and see him there as beautiful and as who he says he is, God's son who died for your sins, you will be saved. You will know that you are born again if you look to that. And just like your mama labored for your physical birth, Jesus labored for your spiritual birth, put in the work for you. New life is something given, okay? It's not earned. New life is something received, not achieved. And John, he puts the exclamation mark on this good news in the Bible uh, with the verse that is most famous for being on coffee mugs and Tim Tebow's face, okay? John 3.16, the verse most popular in the Bible, it says this, for God so loved the world, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Whoever believes, whoever believes, not whoever behaves, Nicodemus. It's not about what you can do for God, but what God did for you on the cross. And if you believe in that, you are saved. That's the good news of the Bible. That is the gospel. That's what it means to be born again. And so that's, that's the encounter with Jesus and Nicodemus at night. But you have to think, 
did, did he ever get it? Like, did, did Nicodemus ever get it? Like, was he ever born again? Well, lucky for us, this isn't the last time Nicodemus is mentioned in the Bible and the book of John. He's mentioned two more times. Once in John 7, uh, and the Pharisees are trying to kill Jesus. And Nicodemus, it's like he raises his hand and says, hey, shouldn't we give him a fair trial? And the Pharisees say, basically, are you a Galilean too? Shut up, Nicodemus. And then we see him one more time. One more encounter with Jesus. Nicodemus in John chapter 19. And it's after Jesus is crucified. So Jesus, he's hung on this cross and he's crucified. And there's two people who come to Jesus' body. Two people. One, his name is Joseph. And the other guy is our boy Nicodemus. And the Bible says he comes to Jesus. And he's one of the ones who takes Jesus' body. And you got to understand, in, in that society, men could not touch dead bodies, especially Pharisees. The women are the ones who took the bodies and buried them. But Nicodemus, in John 19, he chose to be there to bury Jesus. And in doing so, man, he, he's throwing away all of the Pharisee stuff, all of the stuff he once held on to dear, the things that he staked his life on, he's throwing it away because he wants to bury Jesus. And the Bible, it doesn't explicitly say whether Nicodemus uh, was born again, but I truly believe Nicodemus, he's at that crucifixion, and he sees Jesus there lifted up on the cross. And in that moment, you've got to think, he thought back to what happened in John chapter 3, the first time he met Jesus. And he looked there, and he thought about the words, just like the serpent is lifted up in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And you got to think, man, in that moment, it clicked for him. In that moment, he was born again. You got to believe it. And the reason I say that confidently is because the evidences of his life after he encountered Jesus prove it to be true. The evidences of his life after he had an encounter with Jesus on the cross prove that he was born again. You want to know how you can know right now, sitting here, that you are born again? Do you believe the gospel? And does your life reflect a life changed by the gospel? Does your life reflect a life changed by the gospel? Do you have a new heart? Do you have a new heart, new desires? Augustine, he calls being born again, he calls it having the loves of your heart reordered. Having the loves of your heart reordered. And what that means is the things that you once loved become lesser loves. And you start to care more about what Jesus cared about. And you hate the sin you once loved and love the God you once ignored. The things of your heart, they start to change. And you see Jesus and you believe the gospel. So you want to know how you can know you're born again? Simple enough. Do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe? Let me pray for us.